Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. The China in the World podcast is brought to you by Carnegie China and hosted by me, Paul Hanley. Welcome back to Carnegie China's China in the World podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Miss Huang Tiha to discuss China's neighboring diplomacy, and in particular, Xi Jinping's summit diplomacy in recent months. Before diving into the interview, let me first introduce Ms. Huang. Huang Tiha is a senior fellow and co-coordinator of the Regional Strategic and Political Studies Program at the Institute for Southeast Asian Studies, ICS, Yusof Ishak Institute. Ms. Huang's research interests include major powers in Southeast Asia and political security issues in ASEAN, including the South China Sea disputes, uh, as well as ASEAN's Indo-Pacific discourse and institutional building. Before her current position at ICS, Ms. Huang was a lead researcher of political security at the ASEAN Studies Center of ICS. Ms. Huang joined the ASEAN Department of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Vietnam in 2004, and subsequently worked at the ASEAN Secretariat for nine years, where she ultimately served as the Assistant Director, Head of the Political Cooperation Division. Ms. Huang's works include Beyond China, the USA, and ASEAN, Informal Minilateral Options, co-authored with Malcolm Cook in June of 2020. Most recently, um, a journal article for Contemporary Southeast Asia in April 2022 for a, a Relate regarding to understanding the institutional challenges of Indo-Pacific minilaterals to ASEAN. And the last piece to mention, understanding China's proposal for an ASEAN-China community of common destiny and ASEAN's ambivalent response. These are three of, of, of many important works by Ms. Huang that I would recommend, but I would recommend that you go even beyond those three. Thank you, Ms. Huang for joining us today for the China in the World podcast. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me here in your very uh, exciting podcast. Well, thank you. And I was delighted to, to learn that you um, had have been a listener over the years of China in the World. And so, especially in that context, we're delighted uh, to have you join. Let's start out um, by understanding your perspectives on what has been really a flurry of diplomatic engagements by Xi Jinping uh, undertaken uh, in the aftermath, some in the lead up to the Chinese Communist Party's 20th Party Congress in October. Um, Post-Party Congress, she attended the G20 in Indonesia, attended APEC in Thailand, uh, and during those, uh, uh, during those meetings, he held numerous bilateral meetings with leaders from a range of countries, many of whom he frankly had not met with in person in many of years, many years, and some of whom he met for the first time. Uh, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida, Indonesian President uh, Widodo, Korean President Yoon, Singapore Pres uh, Prime Minister Li Shenlong, Thai Prime Minister, Philippine President, Australian Prime Minister, a range of, uh, of leaders, and of course, his trip uh, to Saudi Arabia recently to meet with the crown prince there. In your view, how effective uh, will these meetings that President Xi undertook, 
how how effective will they be in improving China's relations with these major countries? Thank you, uh, Paul. I think let's uh, set the context first, uh, because the context is very important for this summit diplomacy by President Xi this time. I think it was a great timing for President Xi to attend the G20 and APEC summits after his re-election for an unprecedented third term after the 20th Party Congress, um, having secured his supreme position within China, I think it was high time for him to bask in the international recognition among other peer and regional leaders. And uh, the G20 and APEC summits also availed China of uh, much needed avenues to be actively engaged in global uh, summit diplomacy again after almost three years of isolating itself uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I think China's reputation has suffered greatly from the pandemic, especially in the developed world, uh, with diplomatic fallouts over the origins of the virus and China's opportunistic behaviors in territorial and maritime disputes uh, with some of its neighbors and also is a so-called war warrior diplomacy towards the Western audiences. So all of these developments uh, have driven anti-China sentiments in advanced countries to all-time high and also have sunk China's relation with these countries to all-time low. And mm. uh, to make matter worse, China's pursuit of zero COVID policy throughout 2022 even as the rest of the world have embraced it as an endemic, has further curtailed uh, China's global engagement. So against this context, I think this flurry of high-level meetings by President Xi was mm. less a proactive charm offensive than an absolutely necessary effort by China regain its diplomatic initiative and maneuvering in the global arena uh, especially to address uh, the trend of coalition and alliance building between Washington and its uh, allies and like-minded partners to deal with what they view as the systemic challenge and strategic competition of, from China. Mm. How effective will it be to improve China's diplomatic relations with uh, these major countries? I think the essence of these meetings' impact is that um, jaw jaw is better than world war. It's, mm. it's better to be engaged in dialogue rather than in uh, fighting. And uh, these leaders talk uh, were so much anticipated because the baseline of their relations uh, had been quite very low. Uh, for example, Australia's relations with China had been in a deep freeze for the last three years. So any dialogue would be welcome, and the Sea Ambani's meeting is therefore a very much uh, needed breakthrough in that sense. Uh, mm -hmm. As for Sea Biden meeting, I think it is a relief uh, to not only both countries but also to the rest of the world uh, to see that in-person meeting has res been resumed uh, with some positive atmospherics, which uh, gives us hope, and and that is hope only. Um, that it could help reduce tensions and mitigate the risk of conflict, uh, especially over the Taiwan issue. And uh, there are some good assurances coming out from both President Xi and President Biden 
that they don't mm. want war and we take measures toward that end, including a resumption of some defense dialogues to increase transparency, manage competition, and perhaps explore cooperation out where possible. Uh, mm -hmm. But I would so would like to highlight that there is no magic touch here. Uh, the C mm -hmm. Biden meeting would not alter the course of strategic competition between the two great powers and uh, cease meetings with the leaders of Japan, Australia, and India did not constitute uh, a significant step forward in resolving many uh, major differences in their bilateral ties. Uh, for example, uh, on the trade restrictions that China has imposed on Australia, uh, they are still there, or China's long-standing land border dispute with India or the East China dispute with Japan, um, I think they are long-standing uh, problems and also structural problems that cannot be just like, you know, uh, wished away overnight. Um, the good handshakes mm. in Bali and Bangkok did not change uh, the fact that their strategic outlooks are not only fundamentally different, but I think uh, increasingly further apart. Mm. That's very, very helpful context. And I, I agree with you very, very much. I mean, three years of isolation, uh, your point, this was this was less proactive term offensive and more about a necessary effort really to regain the diplomatic initiative. Um, I think that's uh, I think that's a, a terrific, terrific point. Um, and you also mentioned, you know, uh, China's reputation having suffered and anti-China sentiment growing in a number of countries. Um, and that you know the baseline of relations for many of these countries is low, uh, and so you know one meeting is not going to solve all differences between China and these countries. In particular, you mentioned Japan, Australia, India, and of course the U.S.-China relationship, which I'll which I'd like to come back to. Beyond those meetings, Ms. Wang, um, are there any uh, other meetings that you found particularly noteworthy? Uh, presidency also engaged in a number of uh, bilateral meetings with Southeast Asian leaders, uh, especially uh, because uh, Indonesia and Thailand were the hosts of the G20 and APEC. So as part of his summit diplomacy, he traveled to the, these countries uh, as, as, as official visits as well. Um, it is important to note that China's approach towards Southeast Asian countries is very different from its approach towards other major powers. I think um, the region has become even more important to China economically and geopolitically, uh, given um, the rise of U.S.-Sino strategic uh, tensions and also China's uh, increased estrangement uh, from the West. So uh, these recent meetings with Southeast Asian countries are part and continuation of China's continuing uh, charm offensives uh, that have been even uh, accelerated uh, during the pandemic. Um, I think if Xi's outreach to Australia, Japan, India, and Korea is to prevent these countries from further falling into um, the strategic embrace of the US, then Xi's engagement with Southeast Asian countries is meant to more firmly secure the region within China's um, sphere of influence. So uh, out of these meetings uh, with uh, Southeast Asian leaders, China has tried to achieve some uh, very clear objectives. 
Uh, for example, it has tried to push uh, for uh, regional country support of China's global development initiative and global security in initiative. And um, uh, also given the recent tensions and the changing dynamics in the Taiwan Strait, this is a good opportunity for China to seek uh, the affirmation of Southeast Asian countries uh, in upholding um, the One China policy and recognizing Taiwan as part of uh, China. And um, throughout this, uh, these uh, meetings, I think China has tried to further deepen its political security and economic engagements with Southeast Asian countries um, towards the so-called uh, community of a uh, shared destiny or shared future uh, between China and the region. And uh, as ambivalent and, and, and as ambiguous as it is, I think the community of shared destiny or shared future has become a code word uh, for a more Sinocentric regional system in Southeast Asia. Uh, basically, it harks back to uh, an idealized notion of the so-called tributary system in the past, uh, whereby China would, uh, you know, deliver the benefits of peace and prosperity, but in return, uh, it demands deference and respect of uh, China's core national interests and preeminent influence in the region. Mm. Very interesting. Your contrast between Xi's diplomacy in Southeast Asia and with some of those other major powers you mentioned, Japan, Australia, Australia India, Korea, and the U.S., um, it's. I mean, these are very important uh, insights in, you know, this is more about, uh, you know, securing uh, the region's uh, support for, you know, China's sphere of influence, you mentioned, clear objectives here to, to push uh, major concepts that China has put forward, the China Development Initiative, the China Security Initiative, and the common uh, destiny of, or the co community of shared destiny. Um, I, I found those extremely interesting insights, and I want to thank you for those. I also want to come back um, to U.S.-China relations a little bit as well, because you've you've written about this um, in in you wrote a commentary for Fulcrum uh, with your colleague William Chung, um, and you touched on uh, the positive atmospherics between President Xi and President Biden in Bali, and implications for the broader region, and you just mentioned uh, in our discussion that the Xi-Biden meeting was a relief for the rest of the world, uh, which gives gives some hope. Um, I think a lot of folks saw that meeting, you know, as you suggest, as an important short-term stabilizer, you know, given the fraught nature of the relationship. Um, can you say a little bit more about your assessment of the meeting between the two presidents? What were your expectations for uh, the meeting uh, and for the two being able to find some near-term stability in U.S.-China going forward? And how did how were those expectations met or not met? I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, following Xi's Biden's meeting in Bali um, and uh, their agreement on the follow-up steps uh, after this, uh, including the visit by uh, the Secretary of State Antony Blinken to China sometime in early next year, 
uh, there are greater hopes that both superpowers would make sure that their strategic competition would not lead to war and conflict, right? Um, there are many uh, ways to, to phrase this. Uh, for example, the Biden administration keeps talking about, you know, instituting the guardrails or um, the, the, the senior officials, Kurt Campbell and Jack Sullivan also mentioned in their foreign affairs article um, some times ago, that uh, they hoped competition will not lead to catastrophe. And um, the, the, the emerging uh, uh, trend now is to manage, right, the strategic competition. So um, unlike the post-Cold War period when dialogue and engagement um, is the pre prevailing paradigm to maintain peace and promote interdependence and cooperation, I think today's U.S.-China relations need both honest dialogue and credible deterrence to manage their strategic competition. And um, we know, all know that um, I think both the U.S. and the rest of the world are quite clear-eyed about their vigorous long-term and uh, full-spectrum competition going forward because uh, there are underlying structural pop, uh, problems and deep mutual distrust here. Uh, right before the C. Biden Bali meeting, uh, the Biden administration's uh, national security strategy made it very clear that the strategic detente uh, among the major powers in the post-Cold War era is definitely over and the era of great power competition has set in and China is um, uh, is a very different kind of uh, strategic competitor from Russia in the sense that it is the only country with both the intent to reshape the international order and also with the economic, diplomatic, military and technological power to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, likewise, the political report uh, at the 20th Party Congress of uh, the CCP has omitted the term um, strategic window of opportunity and uh, the struggle spirit or the fighting spirit has been further embedded in China's strategic outlook uh, and propaganda system. Um, I also think that uh, the stability of US-China relations going forward uh, will be very much affected by uh, this trend of uh, securitizing what were previously more cooperative domains such as uh, trade, investment, technology, and supply chains. Uh, we, we know that selective decoupling is taking place in some strategic sectors and cutting edge uh, technologies, uh, especially in advanced uh, chip making. And uh, in this game, the US and China are trying to run faster than the other. And that is not mm -hmm. necessarily uh, all negative. Um, and they are also trying to recruit as many like-minded partners to their respective side. And on this win, I think uh, the deepened mutual distrust and loosen the notes of interdependence among the two powers over time, and that may raise the stakes of conflict uh, in the long term as well. Yeah. No, I think that uh, that sounds right to me. I mean, I I, I agree with you that in the in the near term. Um, you know the cooling down of tensions is is a positive, and the the reopening of important dialogue. You mentioned Secretary of State 
Blinken will travel to China in early part of 2023. That'll be his first visit to China as Secretary of State. Uh, we also saw John Kerry, um, our climate czar in the U.S., met uh, with his counterpart, Xia Zhenghua, and the Secretary of Defense met with the minister, uh, Chinese Minister of Defense. Um, and just this past weekend, um, there was a meeting uh, with the Assistant Secretary for East Asia, Dan Crittenbrink from the State Department, Laura Rosenberger from the White House National Security Council, and others, uh, the U.S.-China Working Group. Uh, and I saw that as somewhat positive in that they were talking about, as you mentioned, managing the strategic competition. Uh, they referenced establishing, you know, important principles for managing strategic competition between the U.S. and China going forward. And as you imply, there are a number of domains where that competition will continue to in intensify. You mentioned technology, but there are others as well. Ms. Wong, in that same article that I mentioned uh, with that, that you wrote uh, with William Chung, uh, I was struck by something that you wrote in there where you said that Southeast Asian countries stand to benefit from the competitive dynamic between the U.S. and China. That is a, not a view that you hear often from officials in the region, certainly. Some worry that the great greater power competition will have you know, mostly negative externalities for the region. Um, on the other hand, China's inroads in Asia have led the U.S. to introduce, for example, its own initi diplomatic initiatives like the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, IPEF, Partners in the Blue Pacific, uh, among another, uh, other initiatives that the U.S. has put forward. So help me understand your argument here. The U.S. and China may compete to provide positive inducements to the region. How have you seen this play out uh, in practice? I think uh, there are certainly negative externalities for the region, right? We are all concerned about the fallouts from the U.S.-China strategic competition in terms of economic as, as well as security terms. But that should not, um, uh, you know, um, prevent us from looking at the more positive side of the, of, of the game because great power strategic competition is not only about uh, prevailing over the, the other side in military terms, but also about running faster uh, and winning mm. over more allies and partners to your side. And that involves uh, providing positive inducements, as you mentioned. Um, in the end, I think it boils down to this question um, between the US and China and their respective governance system. Which country would be more superior in delivering economic growth, political stability, social mobility at home, and also in enabling solutions to global challenges and uh, responding to the world's uh, development needs? So positive inducements uh, is not simply the matter of giving handouts or providing more aid. I think it is about being part of the success story of regional countries and enabling their development, uh, economic growth also through trade investment, capacity building and technology transfer. And the US actually did this exceptionally well during the Cold War competition with the Soviet Union. But in this 21st century, I think China stands a good chance of success as well. 
uh, mm. we all know that Southeast Asia is very much um, economically and geopolitically attractive to both Washington and Beijing. And um, Southeast Asian countries have indeed leveraged uh, the, this US-China competitive dynamic to their benefit. Uh, for example, uh, Southeast Asia was a priority region for both the US and China's vaccine diplomacy and mm -hmm. COVID-19 pandemic uh, response uh, since uh, 2020. Um, recent, uh, I think uh, the, the recent statistics show that Indonesia, Vietnam, and the Philippines are among the top 10 recipients of uh, both American and Chinese vaccine donations. And uh, Chinese vaccine sales accounted for almost 70% of Indonesia's vaccine portfolio in 2021. In the case of Cambodia, it was almost uh, like 90%. And um, this enabled Cambodia's timely vaccination and early uh, opening of borders uh, in 2021. And I think um, China's vaccine diplomacy um, is very much a success story in Cambodia, uh, regardless of uh, all the reservations about its uh, lower efficacy rates compared to uh, mRNA vaccines. And mm. another um, important development to watch going forward is that both the US and China are also seeking to dovetail their development assistance and foreign policy goals with their domestic growth agenda. And this growth agenda, domestic development agenda increasingly um, focuses on green development, clean technologies, climate solutions, and digital economy. And I think this would open up new opportunities for their uh, growing collaboration, investment, and capacity building for ASEAN countries going forward. And um, the US also is stepping up collaboration with its airlines and partners uh, through the Quad or other ad hoc Quad Plus, Quad Minus uh, arrangements to uh, scale up their capabilities uh, in offering regional public goods uh, in such areas as uh, COVID-19 vaccine, energy security, um, critical technologies uh, and supply chain resilience. And although um, this is grounded in geopolitics, right, countering China's influence by uh, offering alternatives, um, but this uh, positive agenda also uh, potentially enable US competition with China in a more um, responsible and healthy manner rather than a purely militarized approach. Um, it is also expected that like uh, the push for supply chain diversification and resilience uh, by the US and its airlines and partners uh, will boost uh, the shifting of more high value added manufacturing investment uh, in Southeast Asia. And Vietnam, together with uh, some regional countries like Thailand and Malaysia, have actually been benefited from uh, this diversification drive. Uh, recently, mm. um, you know, um, it is uh, uh, Apple has started uh, uh, yeah. producing iPod in Vietnam and then iPad. And according to recent news, uh, soon Apple Watch and MacBook uh, will also be produced in Vietnam. And that is a good sign uh, that we should look at as well. Well, this is a really important uh, point that, that that you're making. And I, I it, you know, the, the, the 
strategic the competition for strategic influence between the U.S. and China, it, it really requires the U.S. and China to understand the priorities and challenges as as seen by individual countries in the region, um, and an examination of how the U.S. and China can can contribute to advancing those objectives around economic growth, public health, climate change, uh, capacity building, a range of issues. And I'm glad you mentioned the Quad because. You know, I see the Quad as really developing what looks to be a, a much more affirmative or positive agenda based on a set of, as you said, you know, regional public goods around vaccines, energy security, and the like. And I think uh, that 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 seems to be a really important message to understand that you've got to understand the priorities and the challenges that countries in the region are facing and how the U.S. and China can contribute to uh, you you also wrote an article recently in Think China, moving moving north in the region. You talked about the Mekong River uh, and the controversy surrounding uh, China's dam development there. Um, a number of uh, analysts have pointed out the negative aspects of China's upstream hydroelectric power developments and argue that that they've led to falling water levels and droughts, loss of life. What do you view as some of the issues with how China presents uh, its narrative about Mekong River development? I think um, the Mekong River subregion is very much um, a neglected uh, domain, actually, in Southeast Asia, although it is becoming more contested. But China, I think, has so far still remained uh, the most predominant power in the sub-region and it has invested immensely in developing its own narrative about how the Mekong River development should be uh, should be uh, pursued between China and uh, the riparian countries. And central to this Chinese narrative about the Mekong River is the positive framing of its uh, upstream hydropower dams. China has built 11 mega dams uh, in its uh, part of uh, the Mekong um, section. And, um, uh, and, and, and uh, China tried to positive, positively uh, frame is these dams as providing regional public goods uh, through regulating floods and and, and replenishing droughts uh, for, for, uh, for droughts for, for downstream states uh, in the dry season. And mm. of course, this narrative denies the dam's negative environmental consequences, uh, which are being acutely felt by many downstream riparian communities and also have been extensively uh, documented in various uh, uh, studies. And mm. one of the most adverse impacts of this um, of this dam building upstream is uh, the reduced uh, replenishment of sediments uh, from upstream, and uh, this has led to uh, the loss of um, of biodiversity and uh, fisheries, and then that in turn has led to food security risk uh, in downstream states, especially in Cambodia and Vietnam. And another broader, um, uh, important, more I think, uh, more important part of China's narrative is that it places emphasis on economic development as the main prism for Mekong Basin cooperation. 
Mm-hmm. And um, this development first approach is uh, dr- driven by both economic and uh, and and a geopolitical um, uh, objectives. Um, for example, it tried to counter uh, the growing U.S. criticism and securitization of Mekong water issues, uh, particularly particularly with regard to China uh, upstream dam building. And um, it is also part of China's broader top-down uh, state-centric uh, Mekong strategy, uh, which uses uh, political and policy dialogues, economic uh, cooperation and development assistance as the main conduits of engagement with lower Mekong countries. Um, mm-hmm. Compared to the US approach, uh, which uh, centers around the health of the river itself, I think China's bet is that its offerings of trade, aid, investment, and infrastructure building would better respond to and um, actually resonate with the political and economic interests of the ruling uh, regimes in Lower Mekong countries. And so, how how is China uh, China's approach in this regard? How is it impacting China's relations with with these regional riparian states? I think it is important to note that um, all Mekong problems are not all Mekong problems are China centric, and mm. all riparian states have their fair share of uh, of, of responsibility uh, regarding the unsustainable uh, uses of the Mekong water resources, and um, the Me- lower Mekong states, Myanmar, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos and Thailand have very different interests on how the river water resources should be used. And there is simply no consensus among themselves on how to approach China in this regard. Uh, for example, um, Vietnam is the most vulnerable country to both upstream uh, flow changes and China's expanding influence in the sub-region. Uh, therefore, um, Vietnam has actively tried to bring Mekong problems to international spotlight and uh, agenda, including at um, the the ASEAN level. But um, Myanmar has very very little stake in the Mekong because its territory Mm -hmm. accounts for only 3% of the basin. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. Laos controls the most of the basin, around 25%, but it seeks to become the battery of Southeast Asia from hydropower development and therefore uh, Vientiane is more aligned with Beijing uh, than the rest of the lower Mekong countries in terms of dam building. Um, Cambodia um, is more uh, uh, conversion with Vietnam on the concerns about the food security impact of the Mekong problems, but it has to tread very carefully uh, because of the prevailing importance it attaches to maintaining good relations with China. So um, I think the Mekong water problems, including China's dam building, will not overshadow other aspects of China's relations uh, with uh, the mm. lower Mekong countries. Uh, of course, it is uh, a source of occasional grievances, uh, especially at the local community and civil society level. But the broader interest of um, maintaining friendly relations and uh, reaping the economic benefits of Chinese engagement would prevail, especially from the standpoint of the ruling governments. And Mm -hmm. um, China has predominant economic and strategic influence over um, most of the downstream countries, especially Laos, Myanmar, and Cambodia. 
and uh, it uh, it is also true that these countries have experienced um you know democratic backsliding uh, and the turn towards authoritarianism in the past decade and this has mm-hmm. alienated many western countries and as such i think they have increasingly looked uh, towards beijing as the only a credible patron for trade aid uh, and uh, investment. Well, thank you for that. And I, 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 it's a fascinating set of, of issues. And I've, I've enjoyed reading your uh, publications around the Mekong River development issues and, and China's involvement. I I'd encourage our listeners to, to, to do the same. Um, Ms. Wang, I've taken up a lot of your time. I'm going to ask one last question, if you don't mind. Indulge me with one last question. You've also written, uh, I found it, you know, quite interesting about China's narrative regarding the Asian way of building peace. And I wonder if you could just talk a bit about this with our with our listeners. How, in your view, is China using this narrative of the Asian way? Um, one is part of an effort maybe to discredit American diplomacy in Asia uh, or to promote its own approach, for example, in in its push in the South China Sea uh, to maybe convince states to seek, uh, avoid seeking recourse through UNCLASS and instead push for the development of the ASEAN China Code of Conduct. How, how is China using this narrative regarding the Asian way to push some of its diplomatic uh, China has used the Asian way uh, narrative in a very flexible and pragmatic and evolving manner. Um, mm. I think uh, the Asian way uh, concept started to gain greater prominence in China's uh, messaging after the Philippines initiated the South China Sea arbitration case uh, in 2013. And in this narrative, um, Asian neighbors do not bring each other to court because adjudication is deemed to be uh, confrontational and adversarial. Um, we want to keep uh, to, 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 to save face for each other. And, and this narrative seeks to discourage uh, Southeast Asian claimant states from uh, seeking recourse uh, to the dispute settlement system under um, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And uh, China instead insists that the parties to the dispute uh, should try to resolve the differences through uh, what it calls friendly consultations and dialogue, and that the ongoing China-ASEAN um, negotiation on a code of conduct uh, in the South China Sea is a more fitting uh, approach um, uh, uh, for Asian values because, according to China, they are based on consultation and consensus. And um, the idea of consultation, not arbitration, Mm -hmm. uh, ensures that China can take advantage of its power asymmetry with other claimant states uh, rather than having to face them as legal equals uh, before international law, as uh, we um, had witnessed uh, in the arbitration case that the Philippines initiated. in recent years, China has also sharpened the Asian way discourse um, to discredit the U.S. Uh, balance of power moves to counter Chinese influence in the Indo-Pacific, uh, for example, through the strengthening of U.S. alliances in Asia and also through the formation of mini- unilateral coalitions such as the Quad and AUKUS. 
And in China's binary framing, the Asian way is inclusive, harmonious, and dialogue-driven. Um, whereas uh, the U.S. Uh, Indo-Pacific uh, coalition building uh, creates small circles um, that are exclusive, confrontational, and uh, co-war mentality uh, driven. And mm -hmm. the, the intriguing part about the Chinese narrative is that although it praises the Asian way as being inclusive, uh, I think the underlying uh, strategic objective is to promote a more exclusivist, uh, exclusive approach to uh, security governance in Asia and trying to emphasize the distinction between Asia and the West. Um, uh, you know, China likes to, uh, to frame uh, its relations with Southeast Asia as we, uh, you know, versus others, uh, namely the US and other external powers. It also likes to evoke the image of China and ASEAN as family members uh, to draw a line between inside and outside. And uh, this narrative is fully at play on the South China Sea disputes where uh, China claims that regional countries uh, are handling the disputes well and that foreign power influence, uh, influence and provocations are mainly responsible uh, for the troubles in the South China Sea waters. And um, China has also sought to insert its own clauses uh, into the COC to the effect of uh, excluding extra regional companies and countries from oil and gas exploration and uh, military exercises with ASEAN countries in the South China Sea. Uh, mm. So um, this Asian way is very much embedded uh, in President Xi's Asia for Asians formula, you know. Um, where China's influence and core interests take primacy and the influence of the U.S. and other foreign powers becomes more inconsequential, uh, if not marginal. Mm. Asian way is not as inclusive as, as China implies it is. Those are, those are tremendously important um, insights. Um, and I, I, I want to, I've taken up a lot of your time today. I just want to thank you very much for, for all your perspectives, Ms. Wang. Uh, you've introduced our listeners to a, a number of important insights regarding China's diplomacy, and you've shared your thoughts on recent diplomatic efforts, among other things. Very informative and very thought-provoking. Uh, thank you very much again, and we hope to be able to get you back on the China and the World podcast in the future to talk about the future development of China's diplomacy. Thank you very much, Paul, for having me. It's a real pleasure and honor for me to deliver this podcast. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the China and the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to carnegieendowment.org. This episode was produced by Nathaniel Schur with assistance from Tsai Jing Yuan and Mike Tiernan. The music was composed by Spencer Barnett.